Last night, about 11 o'clock, we got a telephone call from one of our students who helps us in the church. And uh, she is a little girl from Peking, China. And uh, she said, this is a Beatrice, almost like an Italian. And uh, uh, she said, you want a poster? And I said, yeah. And she said, what am I going to put on the poster? Uh, we have two services when we have crowds like this. So she put Dr. John Akers uh, of the Billy Graham team. And then she put my name. And after it, she put HLCP. And this is because a friend of hers has been talking to her. And that means humble little country preacher. <laughs> so I'll now read the scriptures. <laughs> this is chapter 4 of the gospel according to John. And it's the account of the conversion of the woman at the well. And so he came to a city of Samaria. And he, a city of Samaria called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place that men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. 
You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman and yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have ever done. This is not the Christ, is it? Amen. Like the woman at the well, I was seeking for things that could not satisfy. And then I heard my Savior speaking, draw from my well that never shall run dry. Fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up and make me things afford, but none can match the wondrous treasure that I find in Jesus Christ my Lord. Fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord, come and quench this thirsting of my Lord, I lift it up. 
going to do a little bit differently this morning in introducing the sermon. By the way, I want to thank uh, Mr. and Mrs. Robert Schimmerhorn, uh, who sung that lovely uh, song that is in keeping with our theme this morning, and Mary Horner, who accompanied them at the piano. Take your bulletin, please, and look at uh, uh, the quotation from Malcolm Muggeridge, which has been printed there. For those of you who do not know who he is, uh, I have often said uh, that there were, uh, in the long association that we've been in Montreat for almost 22 years, and uh, Dr. Billy Graham has been very kind to introduce me to a lot of his friends around the world and who have come here. The only two people that I ever asked him to introduce me to, well, number one was Johnny Cash. <laughs> but you'll cheer up. I also asked him to introduce me to Malcolm Mugley. And he did. Malcolm Muggeridge was the editor of Punch magazine. And uh, literature used to be a great um, uh, field of mine in, in college. And so, and I've kept it up. And Don is a professor of literature here and a PhD candidate in it. Now look at Muggeridge's quotation. There are a few people who can use the, I don't even know anyone who can use the English language as well as Malcolm Muggeridge uh, from Selwyn College at Cambridge. Good and evil provide the theme of the drama of our mortal existence. In this sense, they may be compared with the positive and negative points which generate an electric current. Transpose the points and the current fails. The lights go out, darkness falls, and all is confusion. The darkness is falling on our civilization is likewise due to a transposition of good and evil. In other words, what we are suffering from is not an energy crisis, not an overpopulation crisis, nor a monetary crisis, nor a balance of payments crisis, nor an unemployment crisis, from none of these ills that are commonly pointed out, but from the loss of a sense of moral order in the universe. Without that, no order whatsoever, economic, social, or political, is attainable. For Christians, order is derived from that terrific moment when, while all things were in quiet silence, and that night was in the midst of her swift course, Thine almighty word leap down from heaven, out of thy royal throne, leap down to dwell among us, full of grace and truth. It was thus that Christendom came into existence, and to abandon or repudiate the almighty word from which is derived, it is derived 
would be infallibly to wind up 2,000 years of history and ourselves with it. I think Malcolm Muggridge is correct. What he is saying is that if help comes to us, it must be help that is supernatural, and it must come from God, and he, as a man who has been converted to a personal faith in Jesus Christ, while he was rector of, of Edinburgh University in 1966, and he has grown in that Christian faith. He came from an atheist to an agnostic, uh, to a belief in Jesus, to the big change that transformed his life, and which he says now is the only hope. So that brings us to our theme. For the last few Sundays, we've been studying about that intervention from outside that comes. We studied three weeks ago about a close encounter, a close encounter that a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus had with Almighty God in Jesus Christ when he was struck down on the road to Damascus. He said, I saw a light, I heard a voice, and I was not disobedient. And I have continued this day, to this day is what he said 30 years later. I saw a light, I heard a voice. I was not disobedient. Now let me ask you this question. I know you're members of churches, most people are. But have you really seen the light that your life needs to be controlled by the Master, by the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you really heard his voice in a personal way so that you could say, Lord, what will you have me to do with my life? Have you been obedient to the measure of light and to the measure of the voice which you have heard? Have you continued to grow? Then last week we looked at a very great theologian, an old man whose name was Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, the body of 70 that ruled, a man who came by night, and John is always pointing him out as the one who came by night to see Jesus. And he entered into a conversation with Jesus, very polite and oriental. Good teacher, he said. Uh, he, it's really more affectionate than that. He said, my dear young rabbi, my dear young rabbi. Jesus was about 30. He must have been close to 70. We know that you're a teacher come from God because no man can do these miracles that you've been doing unless God is with him. Now, in Oriental society, when someone pays you a compliment, you compliment them back. And ordinarily, Jesus would have said, Nicodemus, you're a member of the Sanhedrin, a learned theologian. So good to have you come and see me. But Jesus brushed all of that aside and startled the old man by saying, unless you are born again or from above, you can't see, much less understand, 
the kingdom of God. He was shocked. When you're told that that age in life that you've got to start all over again, it's a big shock. Well, that's what Jesus told him. And then he, you, you will recall that he told him that it had to come from water and from the Spirit. That there must be a changed mind like John the Baptist baptized people who came to a change of mind. And then the Holy Spirit, in his own mysterious way, made the words of God made the word of God become effective in the mind and heart of Nicodemus for truth. He told our students in the chapel this Wednesday, Sir Henry Newbolt's little poem, This is the chapel, and here, my son, your father thought the thoughts of you, and heard the words which one by one the touch of life has turned to truth. Now then, I've asked Don to stay here because in secular literature and films, we see a hunger and a thirst for the supernatural. A couple of my dear friends are here today who pointed this out to me about the film E.T., Extraterrestrial. This is a desire for a friendly help from the outside to come to us. A secularist uh, putting this out, showing a hunger in our hearts that, that needs to be met and even secular literature recognizes it. Now why do we need a conversion experience, a new birth? I've asked Don this morning because most of our students have been required to read while they were in high school a book by William Golding called Lord of the Flies. And Lord of the Flies certainly teaches us that we need help from the outside. Why would you say that? Well, Golding in that novel certainly tackles one of the age-old themes that almost all literature deals with. That is the, the battle between good and evil and man's position in that battle. And it, very accurately, I think, and very poignantly, Golding displays in that novel that when man is taken from a situation where there is no authority, that is, authority imposed from above, he will quickly disintegrate into being a savage, to fighting among, among himself and so forth. Golding well expresses, I think, uh, sort of the modern uh, search for truth, for understanding, and he also well illustrates the nature of man, that man basically is evil and not good. Because as, as, as those boys on that island uh, find out, those of you that remember Lord of the Flies, they have a, there's a group of boys who are uh, marooned on an island. I believe the oldest is about 13 years old. They come from a strict English school where they've been brought up and taught what is good and what is evil and so forth. But very quickly, without that authority, the basic nature of man, the evilness within man, the greed, the hunger for power, the uh, lust, quickly comes out and we see there that there can be no sense of order and everything quickly disintegrates. In Lord of the Flies, um, here is an airplane that's uh, going over an island. Little English choir boys are there. The oldest is only 13. They wind up crashed upon this island. Then uh, they're alive. They escape death, but they must organize into a society in order to be able to exist. You see, we have to organize into a society to exist, too. 
the world has to organize into a society too. That's why we see such terrors taking place in Africa now. Uh, well, they organize into a society so that they can get food, so that they can get help. And uh, uh, when you organize into a society, you have to have leaders to lead the organization. Who's the leader? Well, the uh, boys choose the biggest boy, as you might imagine, <laughs> Ralph. But uh, Ralph has some competition from a boy named Jack. And in between is a rather weak fellow who can't see well. And by the way, his glasses are fairly symbolic, I think, in the novel. A fellow named Piggy, that's his nickname. And the boys, in the end, have to choose whether or not they're going to follow Ralph or whether or not they're going to follow Jack. And uh, the breakdown, as I said, is, is quite interesting, and I think it can be traced to the fact that there is no outside authority. It's just the boys themselves. I remember very well Piggy because Piggy doesn't like to be called Piggy. And the first thing he does is tell Ralph, who's really kind of the everyman, the good guy, and he tells Ralph, I want to tell you a secret. I want to tell you my nickname. And he said, but please promise me you won't tell anyone. And Ralph promises. Now, you know how that works. If you tell anyone, always tell them not to tell anyone. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, uh, Piggy uh, tells him, my, my real nickname is Piggy. And right away, Ralph roars laughing and starts calling him Piggy. You remember, <laughs> you remember this. It shows you uh, what happens uh, there. That the little mean, petty, gossipy junk that exists there, Golding is trying to show us a portrait of human nature. I think he does this best by the one dominant symbol in the novel, and that is something that's called the beast. The boys throughout the novel are afraid of this unknown beast, they run at night and they huddle together at night in fear of this beast. But yet one young boy named Simeon, or Simon, is the only character who really knows who the beast is. The boys think the beast is something from the outside. They think it's a monster, that which is unknown. But Simon is the only boy that knows that the real beast is the beast within, that evil that's within them. And I think Calvin later on may touch upon what happens to Simon when he tells the others, or tries to tell the others, what the real beast is. Do you remember uh, uh, the significance of the uh, fact that they, uh, uh, the, the airplane comes over and the parachutist comes out, and by this time, have they killed the pig now, and they're more superstitious? Right, I think so. Mm -hmm. And uh, they see, it, it, you can almost see them coming down over Lookout, if you've ever climbed up <laughs> Lookout. Uh, the uh, parachute comes down, and Simeon, who is the one person who is mystical and not given to superstition, is the one who goes up there. Everyone else is scared. Now, they have managed. They got tired of eating breadfruit or bananas or whatever it was they were eating, and they wanted some bacon, so they sharpened some spears, and they finally ran a pig down and killed it. And boy, they felt uh, like they were great heroes to have killed a pig. And then they cut the pig's head off and they impale it on a stick. And then flies begin to swarm around the stick. And then these boys begin to break down. And they look at the head on the, of a pig on a stick. And William Golding, who is Jewish, and knows what Hitler did with Jews in World War II, knows that you cannot be optimistic about human nature. They look at this pig's head on a stick, and they, they get up a chant, and their little chant is, kill the pig, kill the pig, drink his blood. And they make that into a little ritual, 
And then they are in two hunters' groups, the ones who follow Ralph and the ones who follow Jack. But they're worried about that parachute that came down. And they try to get a scouting party to find out, but they're so scared and so superstitious. It's interesting that Simeon goes up a mountain because Moses goes up a mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And Jesus goes up a mountain to die for us at Calvary. And then when Simeon, the mystic, the one perfectly good person, comes back down, they see the bushes rustle, and they think at first that it's a pig. And then there is a moment of truth when they actually see that it is not a pig, it is little Simeon. But the lust to kill is so big in them now that even though they recognize him, they kill him. And then when they've killed him, something happens to them. They know that it's more fun to kill people than to kill pigs. Then what happens? Well, the disintegration continues until at the end of the novel, uh, the group led by Jack, who are now by this stage literally savages, they've painted themselves, they begin to wear masks, which is very significant as well. Uh, they hardly look like the boys they were when they came. They are the dominant group, and the group led by Ralph is splintered, you know, off in different directions. They're all isolated. And the novel ends with Jack's group just about to capture Ralph after he's hidden in a thicket. They set fire to the thicket. And finally, at the very end, a, an authority from the outside does come in. There's a landing ship from the British Navy, and all of the boys are rounded up. But it takes that outside authority to save all of the boys at the end. It's a very powerful, very powerful statement. And I think, as Calvin has said many times from this pulpit, that modern literature quite often is capable of showing us the evil of man, the base situation of man, man's lostness. But modern literature cannot provide any outside authority that is worth believing in and holding to. Thank you, Don. Now that brings us to our lesson today because we see the one whom God has sent to be our Savior from the outside. We, we see, Jesus, last week we saw, in striking contrast, we saw to, uh, there's, there are a few places in the Bible where there is more contrast than in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of the Gospel according to John. By any man's list, John 3 and 4 put side by side are two of the greatest passages in the Bible. Chapter 3 is about a man, Nicodemus. Chapter 4 is about a woman, that well at Samaria where the woman comes. Chapter 3 took place at night. Nicodemus comes under the cloak of darkness. Chapter 4 takes place at high noon. Chapter 3 has to do with a, a highly placed religious authority, a paragon of virtue, a pillar of the establishment. And chapter 4 has to do with a prostitute. Uh, chapter 3 has to do with a Jew. Chapter 4 has to do with a Samaritan. Uh, chapter 3 is interesting because Nicodemus goes away wondering if this young rabbi really is the Messiah. And isn't it interesting that in chapter 4, the prostitute, who is probably more conscious of the need of her life to be changed, goes into town and bears a great testimony and a witness that Jesus is the Messiah. 
and she truly is converted. Now, later in Nicodemus' life, we will see him come into a conversion experience, too. So let's start with uh, chapter 4, verse 4. He must needs pass through Samaria. Now, the must there, uh, geographically, it was not any more necessary for him to pass through Samaria uh, to get to uh, Jerusalem than it would be to pass through Miami to get from Dallas to Montreal. Uh, but I must go through there. Uh, he would go through there for a reason. The reason has to do with the will of God. The reason has to do with this woman who is there and who will be at that well. Many things in the Bible take place at the well. It's funny, I was thinking about this morning. Uh, when I was a little boy, I grew up on a farm out in East Texas, and I don't think anyone who ever grew up on a farm ever forgets a well. You make a lot of trips to the well, and uh, you don't forget the well. And uh, uh, many things happen at a well, especially in a desert country, an arid region like this. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied, this tells us that he is the God-man being wearied with his journey, was, set, was sitting thus by the well. He sat down. It's about the sixth hour. Now, uh, they counted from six o'clock in the morning. Six hours later is going to be noon. It's high noon, and it's hot as blazes, the time when people take their siesta and rest. And Jesus was hungry, and he was thirsty, and he was tired. And so he sat down at this well. This would be a strange time for the woman of Samaria to come to draw water. I remember visiting this place, as some of the rest of you here have done. Uh, there's still about 5,000 Samaritans who live there. The Samaritans go all the way back to the time uh, when they, the captivity came and the Assyrians uh, took uh, many of the Jews into captivity, but some of them were left back in the land, back in Samaria, and they intermarried, and they became mongrels as far as race and religion were concerned, and the, and the pure Jews could not stand the Samaritans. They hated them, so they wanted to walk around from their place to get away from where they were, and it's astonishing that Jesus goes through there, but he does. So he comes to, to this well, and a woman of Samaria comes there to drink water, and Jesus says to her, give me to drink, give me a drink of water. Uh, it explains to us that his disciples have gone into town to buy food, and, and uh, this woman must have been startled. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? She knew by that uh, blue, which was distinctive of the Jewish dress, the blue tassel on Jesus' uh, dress, that he was a Jew. She knew by his accent that he was a Jew. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She may have thought, you know, you Jews are really something. You won't even speak to us Samaritans. But when you get thirsty, you don't mind asking us for a drink of water. Maybe that was going through her mind. At any rate, she was startled that Jesus would speak with her, and he did speak to her. He, he breaks down that barrier. 
Now let me say this. Every Christian, and I hope you are a Christian, you are either a missionary or you are a mission field. If you belong to Jesus, then you ought to be sharing your faith with someone else. What if you died today and you went into the presence of God? Could you ever say to your Savior, I have witnessed about your love to other people. I know all that business about I witnessed through my presence. That's very great. But a lot of people can't understand your presence as well as you think they can. And it might be well if you didn't presume so much on your presence and you spoke a word to back it up. Speak a word for Jesus Christ, and Jesus speaks a word. He goes through the race barrier. He goes through the barrier of speaking to a woman, and he speaks to this woman. Jesus said to her, give me a drink of water. He asked a favor of her. Jesus uh, uh, said this to her, so she banters sort of back to him. She says, why is it that you're a Jew and you ask water from me, a woman of Samaria? Now, the, you ought to underline these next four words. If you knew, man, isn't that a tremendously powerful little statement? If you knew the gift of God and who it is to, who says to you, give me to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There are people in this world who are not satisfied with their yachts, who are not satisfied with their luxurious homes, who are not satisfied with their whiskey bottle, who are not satisfied with their uh, swapping wives, who are not satisfied with the things that the world has to offer, as Rob and Natalie were singing about a while ago. Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and heal this thirsty heart of mine. And Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Abraham Lincoln was once asked which of the Beatitudes of Jesus he loved the most. And he said, I can honestly say that the one that I love the most is blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, because I am hungry and I am thirsty. And that hunger and that thirst which brought you to church today assures you of some blessing if you really are hungry and if you really are thirsty. So he says, if you only knew, if you only knew that God Almighty is really here today, that Jesus is really here, and that the Holy Spirit is prepared to do great things in your life, if you're willing like that Saul of Tarsus, even on the road to Damascus, if you're willing to see the light and hear the voice and not be disobedient to the truth that God reveals to you and continue to walk in it, what a difference there could be. I've always said the Christian faith is not like instant plastic money. It's not like a 30-second commercial on television. It's not simply signing a card, raising a hand, walking an aisle. It's very important how you walk this aisle and go out the door. What are you going to do when you leave here? Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you to give me to drink, you would have asked him, 
and he would have given you the living water. He would have given you the living water. The British destroyer that comes to help the little boys on the island, that's one form of help. When he sees what a sorry mess they've made of things, and our world is in a mess. And nuclear war is a great fear. But the answer has got to come from God, not from man. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where will you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus said, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. So what? You are able to feed everybody in the world. You are able to give everyone all the housing that they need. You will thirst again. You will thirst again. Because the blank in man's heart is a God-shaped blank. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, said Jesus, shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That woman had walked 45 minutes down from that village to that well, carrying that water pot. And she's thinking about what he said. And she says back incredulously almost, she says, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Now then, he is going to elicit from her a confession. He says, Go call your husband and come here. Do you recognize your need of him? Do you as an individual? Your need of a savior? Go call your husband and come here. She says very demurely, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right. You've had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. You told the truth. And then she says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> Even at the beauty shop, they would have caught that one. <laughs> sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And now what do you do when you get trapped by the Lord and his convicting power is coming to bear on your life? Ask a question, a theological question. Always ask a question. And so she asked the question. She said, well, our fathers say that the place to worship is in this mountain, and you people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She's going to get on a high-flown topic now about where you worship. She's going to read a book on theology. It's always easier to read a book on prayer than it is to pray. And it's always easier to read a book on theology than it is to give your heart to the Lord. Hell's going to be loaded with theologians. It's possible to be a very uh, great theologian and a very poor Christian. Uh, knowledge won't do it. Just the knowledge of the stuff that's there. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming 
When neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father, you worship, you know not what, we worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Is your worship that way this morning? In spirit and in truth? Did you come hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Are you willing for him to say what he will to your life? Is there someone you need to forgive for something you have said or done? Are you willing to forgive them? If not, then you're still Lord of your own life. Jesus is not Lord. Where do you stand before him? The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. I love that. I know that Messiah is coming, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And now it's just marvelous to me that Jesus reveals to a Samaritan prostitute who he is. Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman, and yet no one said to him, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city. Now, only an eyewitness would have caught that. She left the water pot because she was going to come back and get it. This shows you this is a true, accurate record. She left the water pot and ran into the city. And she said to the men, they all knew her, she said to the men, come and see a man. Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. She realized that he can see right through you here this morning. Everything you've ever lied about, everything you've ever stolen, he knows it all. And if you thought it was going to be flashed on the screen up here, all of us would clear the sanctuary quickly. (laughs) Jesus knows it. And the incredible thing is that he loves us and he wants to make us what we ought to be. She told those people back in the city, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This has got to be the Christ. This has got to be the Christ. And they went out of the city and they were coming to him. And in the meantime, his disciples said to him, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples said, well, did someone bring him something to eat? Now, this is the key phrase. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him that sent me. What is the will of God? It is to witness and to win other people to faith in him. That's his will. Are you carrying out his will? He was so refreshed by having seen this sinful woman come into a vital relationship with God that he wasn't even hungry and he wasn't even tired anymore. He forgot all about being hungry and thirsty because he saw the joy of that. And then when he looked in back of her, he saw the whole town coming out. And not only that, but they begged this Jew 
to stay in their town two days. I'm sure they must have talked about that for years. Why, we remember when Jesus stayed here two days. Jesus, the Messiah, stayed in our town for two days. They never forgot that. Man, that woman started a revival. Out in Texas, we used to talk about holding a revival. She let one go <laughs> here. And Jesus said, you say there are four months and then the harvest. Behold, I say, lift up your eyes and look on the field. Behold, they are white to harvest. And already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. That he who sows, and he had sowed a seed in that woman. And he who reaps may rejoice together. One sows and another reaps. This is wonderful. I hope that you make it your business to witness to someone, if you know Jesus as your Savior this week, about your own faith in him and studying the Gospel of John. I have been using a, a little book by Robert E. Spear, who used to speak down in Anderson Auditorium. May I close with something that he wrote when he was an old, old man. He looked back over the years. Let me tell you how the Savior satisfies and slacks that thirst. This is what he said in his, in his latter, just, just not many months before he died. Jesus still comes to me today as a living spirit, as well as a historic person. He gives assurance that if I accept him as my Savior and my Lord and follow him, I will be saved not only from my sins and wrongs, but... He helped me to live as God would have me to live. He gives me an ideal to live by and a pattern for life, and he helps me to live out that pattern. He assures me of forgiveness when I fail. He helps me to seek again to do his will. His teaching gives me guidance and counsel and truth in a world of doubt and fear in the midst of changing standards and ways of life. He is a living presence in my daily walk. There is a spirit and a purpose in me that could not be there except for Jesus. He helps me in the choices of life to know right from wrong. Remember our original quotation, Mugridge said, the trouble is we've transposed and we no longer know right from wrong to choose the best of, of the good things that life offers. He gives me courage and hope in the testing hours of life and in the face of the problems of my generation. He gives me the joy of introducing others to him. Have you introduced anyone else to Jesus? And to the happiness of the Christian life. He calls me to work with him in his kingdom, and he makes me dissatisfied with anything in life about me that is not in accord with his principles and his spirit. He has introduced me to a fellowship that transcends all human barriers of race and denomination. He gives me in his church a place of worship and training and fellowship. That's why we're here. Let me close by telling you an interesting story from a very famous Presbyterian. His name was Woodrow Wilson. I went in his birthplace once up in Virginia, and I thought about this. When Woodrow Wilson 
was the president of Princeton University. By the way, he's the only president of the United States Don had ever had a PhD. Uh, he, he was president of Princeton University. He went into a barber shop one day, and do you know who was in the barber shop getting his hair cut? A thick, heavy-set man by the name of Dwight Lyman Moody, a man who scarcely had a fifth-grade education. Mr. Moody talked to the barber, and he talked to him about Jesus. Just as simply and plainly and happily and joyfully as Jesus was his best friend. Woodrow Wilson said that he had been waiting there and had seen Mr. Moody come in and had seen him sit down in the chair. And he said, I just observed him. He didn't know who I was, but I knew who he was. And he said, I watched the whole change of conversation and talk in the barbershop turn. And he said, when the barber dusted the cloth off and Mr. Moody paid him and walked out the door, Woodrow Wilson said, I felt like I'd been in a beautiful church service and it had my soul blessed. Blessed by a man who was not ashamed to talk about Jesus there in a barber shop, who took his example from a Savior who talked to a woman by a well.